Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, you, the fans of 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, are getting a special preview of an incredible true story that will unfold in the next episode of both our shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries next week. The story involves a steam clipper called the Royal Charter, which was built at Sandycroft Ironworks on the River Dee in England and launched in 1855. She was a new design of a ship, a 2,719-ton iron-hull steam clipper, which meant she had sails, but when there was no wind, she could run on her auxiliary steam engines. She was built to be used mainly as a passenger ship to deliver travelers from Liverpool to Australia and back, and she had cargo space as well to deliver goods. She could carry up to 600 passengers, and often did, featuring first-class accommodations to those who could afford it. The trip to Australia via Cape Horn took around 60 days. In late October of 1859, the Royal Charter was returning to Liverpool from Melbourne with 370 passengers and a crew of 112 able souls. The passenger list included a large number of gold miners who had struck it rich in the Australia gold rush, a topic we'll be covering soon, and were carrying large sums of gold about their persons. A consignment of gold was also in the cargo hold. As the ship reached the northwestern tip of Anglesey on the 25th of October, the weather was turning bad. The barometer was dropping, and according to survivor reports, the captain, Thomas Taylor, was advised to put her into port at Holyhead Harbor to ride out the coming storm, but the ship continued toward Liverpool. Just off Point Linus, the ship tried to pick up the Liverpool pilot to guide her in, but the wind had risen to storm force 10 on the Beaufort scale, and the fast-rising sea made taking on a pilot impossible. During the night of the 25th, 26th, the wind rose to Hurricane Force 12, and what went into the history books as the Royal Charter Gale. One cannot imagine the terror of those people on board that night as the huge ship was buffeted about on the waves just offshore, like a toy. As the wind rose, it changed the ship's direction from east to northeast, and then north-northeast, driving the ship towards the northeast coast of Anglesey. She anchored at 11 p.m. in a desperate attempt to prevent a wreck, but two hours later the port anchor chain snapped, followed an hour later by the starboard anchor chain, and the ship was driven helplessly inshore, despite every effort by her steam engines to move her away. She initially grounded on a sandbank, offering a glimmer of hope, but on the early morning of the 26th, the rising tide carried her off the banks and into the rocks at a point just north of Melfry at Point Aylert on the north coast of Anglesey. Battered against the rocks by huge waves driven by hurricane winds, she broke up. From this point, the story takes a number of directions, 
beginning with the attempts to save lives, and one of the stories that Charles Dickens wrote about the disaster when he arrived in Anglesey soon after the wreck and was able to interview the locals who had been involved in the tragedy. Upon his visit to the scene of the wreck, Dickens interviewed the rector of the town church, Lenalgo, Reverend Stephen Roos Hughes, whose heroic actions the day of the wreck in trying to save the ship's passengers from drowning took such a great toll on his body that it led to his own death shortly afterwards. One member of the crew, Maltese-born Guzzi Rugier, also known as Joseph Rogers, managed to swim ashore with a line, enabling a few people to be rescued, and a few others were able to struggle to shore through the surf. Most of the passengers and crew, a total of over 450 people, died. Many of them were killed by being dashed against the rocks by the waves, rather than drowned. Others were said to have drowned, some weighed down by the belts of gold they were wearing around their bodies. The survivors, 21 passengers and 18 crew members, were all men, with no women or children saved. Charles Dickens's friend, painter Henry O'Neill, exhibited the picture of Volunteer in 1860, based on that incident and depicting Rogers about to leap into the sea with a rope tied around his waist. The story offered today is a fictional story about the wreck that Dickens wrote, using the story of that actual rescue attempt as the basis for his story. This is known as one of the finest descriptive passages from one of the best written novels in the English language, David Copperfield, which we at 1001 Classic Short Stories highly recommend. The narrator in this story is a young David Copperfield as he travels to see his friend, Ham Peggotty. And now, The Shipwreck by Charles Dickens. Having made up my mind to go down to Yarmouth, I went round to the coach office and took the box seat on the mail. In the evening, I started, by that conveyance, down the road. Don't you think that a very remarkable sky? I asked the coachman in the first stage out of London. I don't remember to have seen one like it. "'Nor I. Not equal to it,' he replied. "'That's wind, sir. There'll be mischief done at sea, I expect, before long.' It was a murky confusion, here and there blotted with a color like the color of the smoke from damp fuel, a flying clouds tossed up into most remarkable heaps, suggesting greater heights in the clouds than there were depths below them to the bottom of the deepest hollows in the earth, through which the wild moon seemed to plunge headlong as if... In a dread disturbance of the laws of nature, she had lost her way and were frightened. There had been wind all day, and it was rising then with an extraordinary great sound. In another hour, it had much increased, and the sky was more overcast, and it blew harder. As we struggled on, nearer and nearer to the sea, from which the mighty wind was blowing dead on shore, its force became more and more terrific. Long before we saw the sea, its spray was on our lips and showered salt rain upon us. The water was out over miles and miles of the flat country adjacent to Yarmouth, and every sheet and puddle lashed its banks and had its stress of little breakers setting heavily toward us. When we came within sight of the sea, the waves on the horizon, caught at intervals above the rolling abyss, were like glimpses of another shore with towers and buildings. When at last we got into the town, the people came out to their doors, all aslant and with streaming hair, making a wonder of the mail that had come through such a night. I put up at the old inn and went down to look at the sea, staggering along the street 
which was strewn with sand and seaweed and with flying blotches of sea foam. A tremendous sea itself when I could find sufficient pause to look at it. In the agitation of the blinding wind, the flying stones and sand and the awful noise confounded me. As the high watery walls came rolling in and, at their highest, rumbled into surf, they looked as if the least would engulf the town. As the receding waves swept back with a hoarse roar, it seemed to scoop our caves in the beach as if its purpose were to undermine the earth. When some white-headed billows thundered on and dashed themselves to pieces before they reached the land, every fragment of the late hole seemed possessed by the full might of its wrath, rushing to be gathered to the composition of another monster. Undulating hills were changed to valleys. Undulating valleys, with a storm bird sometimes skimming through them, were lifted up to hills. Masses of water shivered and shook the beach with a booming sound. Every shape tumultuously rolled on, as soon as made, to change its shape and place, and beat another shape and place away. The ideal shore on the horizon, with its towers and buildings, rose and fell. The clouds flew fast and thick. I seemed to see a rending and upheaving of all nature. Not finding my old friend Ham among the people whom this memorable wind, for it is still remembered down there as the greatest ever known to blow upon that coast, had brought together, I made my way to his house. It was shut, and as no one answered to my knocking, I went by back ways and by lanes to the yard where he worked. I learned there that he had gone to Lowe's Top to meet some sudden exigency of ship repairing in which his skill was required, but that he would be back tomorrow morning in good time. I went back to the inn, and when I had washed and dressed and tried to sleep, but in vain, it was five o'clock in the afternoon. I was very much depressed in spirits, very solitary, and felt an uneasiness in Ham's not being there, disproportionate to the occasion. I was persuaded that possibly he would attempt to return from Lowestoft by sea and be lost. This grew so strong with me that I resolved to go back to the yard before I took my dinner and ask the boat builder if he thought his attempting to return by sea at all likely. If he gave me the least reason to think so, I would go over to Lowestoft and prevent it by bringing him back with me. I hastily ordered my dinner and went back to the yard I was none too soon, for the boat builder, with a lantern in his hand, was locking the yard gate. He quite laughed when I asked him the question, and said there was no fear. No man in his senses, or out of them, would put off in such a gale of wind, least of all Ham Piggotty, who had been born to seafaring. I went back to the inn. The howl and roar, the rattling of the doors and windows, the rumbling in the chimneys, the apparent rocking of the very house that sheltered me and the prodigious tumult of the sea were more fearful than in the morning. But there was now a great darkness besides, and that invested the storm with new terrors, real and fanciful. I could not eat. I could not sit still. I could not continue steadfast in anything. Something within me, faintly answering to the storm without, tossed up the depths of my memory and made a tumult in them. Yet in all the hurry of my thoughts, wild running with thundering sea, the storm and my uneasiness regarding Ham were always in the foreground. 
My dinner went away almost untasted, and I tried to refresh myself with a glass or two of wine. In vain. I fell into a dull slumber before the fire, without losing my consciousness either of the uproar out of doors or of the place in which I was. Both became overshadowed by a new undefinable horror, and when I awoke, or rather when I shook off the lethargy that bound me in my chair, my whole frame thrilled with objectless and unintelligible fear. I walked to and fro, tried to read an old gazetteer, listened to the awful noises, looked at faces, scenes, and figures in the fire. At length, the steady ticking of the undisturbed clock on the wall tormented me to that degree that I resolved to go to bed. There was a dark gloom in my solitary chamber when I at length returned to it. But I was tired now, and getting into bed again, fell off a tower and down a precipice into the depths of sleep. I have an impression that for a long time, though I dreamed of being elsewhere, and in a variety of scenes, it is always blowing in my dream. At length I lost that feeble hold upon reality, and was engaged with two dear friends, but who they were I don't know, at the siege of some town in a roar of cannonading. The thunder of the cannon was so loud and incessant that I could not hear something I much desired to hear until I made a great exertion and awoke. It was broad day, eight or nine o'clock, the storm raging in lieu of the batteries and someone knocking and calling at my door. What's the matter? I cried. A wreck, close by. I sprang out of bed and asked, what wreck? A schooner from Spain or Portugal, laden with fruit and wine. Make haste, sir, if you want to see her. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's thought she'll go to pieces any moment. The excited voice went clamoring along the staircase, and I wrapped myself in my clothes as quickly as I could and ran into the street. Numbers of people were there before us, all running in one direction, to the beach. I ran the same way, outstripping a good many, and soon came facing the wild sea. The wind might by this time have lulled a little, though not more sensibly than if the cannonading I had dreamed of had been diminished by the silencing of half a dozen guns out of hundreds. But the sea, having upon it the additional agitation of the whole night, was infinitely more terrific than when I had seen it last. Every appearance it had then presented bore the expression of being swelled, and the height to which the breakers rose, and, looking over one another, bore one another down and rolled in, in interminable hosts, was most appalling. In the difficulty of hearing anything but wind and waves, and in the crowd, and the unspeakable confusion, and my first breathless attempts to stand against the weather, I was so confused that I looked out to sea for the wreck, and saw nothing but the foaming heads of the great waves. A half-dressed boatman standing next to me pointed with his bare arm, a tattooed arrow on it, pointing in the same direction, to the left. Then, oh great heaven, I saw it close in upon us. 
One mast was broken short off, six or eight feet from the deck, and lay over the side, entangled in a maze of sail and rigging, and all that ruin as the ship rolled and beat, which she did without a moment's pause, and with a violence quite inconceivable, beat the side as if it would stave it in. Some efforts were even then being made to cut this portion of the wreck away, for as the ship, which was broadside on, turned towards us in her rolling, some efforts were even then being made to cut this portion of the wreck away. I plainly described her people at work with axes, especially one active figure with long curling hair, conspicuous among the rest, but a great cry, which was audible even above the wind and water, rose from the shore at this moment. The sea, sweeping over the rolling wreck, made a clean breach and carried men, spars, casks, planks, bulwarks, heaps of such toys into the boiling surge. The second mast was yet standing with the rags of rent sail and a wild confusion of broken cordage flapping to and fro. The ship had struck once, the same boatman hoarsely said in my ear, and then lifted in and struck again. I understood him to add that she was parting amidships, and I could readily suppose so, for the rolling and beating were too tremendous for any human work to suffer long. As he spoke, there was another great cry of pity from the beach. Four men arose with the wreck out of the deep, clinging to the rigging of the remaining mast, uppermost, the active figure with the curling hair. There was a bell on board, and as the ship rolled and dashed like a desperate creature driven mad, now showing us the whole sweep of her deck, as she turned on her beam ends toward the shore, now nothing but her keel, as she sprung wildly over and turned towards the sea, the bell rang, and its sound, the knell of those unhappy men, was borne towards us on the wind. Again we lost her, and again she rose. Two men were gone. The agony on shore increased. Men groaned and clasped their hands. Women shrieked and turned away their faces. Some ran wildly up and down along the beach, crying for help where no help could be. I found myself one of these, frantically imploring a knot of sailors whom I knew not to let those two lost creatures perish before our eyes. They were making out to me in an agitated way that the lifeboat had been bravely manned an hour ago and could do nothing, and that as no man would be so desperate as to attempt to wade off with a rope and establish a communication with the shore, there was nothing left to try. When I noticed that some new sensation moved the people on the beach and saw them part, and ham came breaking through them to the front. I ran to him, as well as I know, to repeat my appeal for help, but distracted though I was by a sight so new to me and terrible, the determination on his face and his look out to sea awoke me to a knowledge of his danger. I held him back with both arms and implored the men with whom I had been speaking not to listen to him, not to do murder, not to let him stir from off that sand. Another cry arose from the shore, and looking towards the wreck, we saw the cruel sail, with blow on blow, knock off the lower of the two men and fly up in triumph round the active figure left alone, hanging to the mast. Against such a sight and against such determination as that of the calmly desperate man who was already accustomed to lead half the people present, I might as hopefully have entreated the wind. Master Davy 
he said cheerily, grasping me by both hands. If my time has come, tis come. If it ain't, I'll bite it. Lord above bless you, and bless all. Mates, make me ready. I'm a-going off. I was swept away, but not unkindly, to some distance, where the people around me made me stay, urging, as I confusedly perceived, that he was bent on going, with help or without it, and that I should endanger the precautions for his safety by troubling those with whom they rested. I don't know what I answered or what they rejoined, but I saw hurry on the beach, and men running with ropes from a capstan that was there, and penetrating into a circle of figures that hid him from me. Then I saw him standing alone in a seaman's frock and trousers, a rope in his hand, or slung to his wrist, another round his body, and several of the best men holding at a little distance to the ladder which he laid out himself, slack upon the shore, at his feet. The wreck, even to my unpracticed eye, was breaking up. I saw that she was parting in the middle, and that the life of the solitary man upon the mast hung by a thread. Still he clung to it. Ham watched the sea, standing alone, with the silence of suspended breath behind him, and the storm before him, until there was a great retiring wave when, with a backward glance at those who held the rope, which was made fast around his body, he dashed in after it, and in a moment was buffeting with the water, rising with the hills, falling with the valleys, lost beneath the foam, then drawn again to land. They hauled in hastily. He was hurt now. I saw blood on his face from where I stood, but he took no thought of that. He seemed hurriedly to give them some directions for leaving him more free, and so I judged from the motion of his arm, and was gone, as before. And now he made for the wreck, rising with the hills, falling with the valleys, lost beneath the rugged foam, borne in towards the shore, borne on towards the ship, striving hard and valiantly. The distance was nothing, but the power of the sea and the wind made the strife deadly. At length he neared the wreck. He was so near that with one more of his vigorous strokes he'd be clinging to it. When a high, green, vast hillside of water, moving on showward from behind the ship, he seemed to leap up into it with a mighty bound, and the ship was gone. Some eddying fragments I saw in the sea, as if a mere cask had been broken, and running to the spot where they were hauling in. Consternation was in every face. They drew him to my very feet, insensible, dead. He was carried to the nearest house, and no one prevented me now. I remained near him, busy, while every means of restoration was tried. But he had been beaten to death by the great wave, and his generous heart was stilled forever. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. There is much more to be told about the wreck of the Royal Charter, how those few survivors actually made it to shore, the heroic attempts of the crew and others to save them, the many reports of treasure found in years to come, including the largest gold nugget ever discovered, and the attempts today to uncover a treasure still buried in the waters off those treacherous rocks. 1001 Classic Short Stories lives on reviews, and you can find a link to iTunes reviews in our show notes. If you enjoy our stories, let others know. That's how we grow. Also, send a link of this episode to a few friends. That helps us as well. 
Thanks to all of you. Thanks for your comments and likes at Facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes. And tell a friend. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.